Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. I am very happy to be joined today by Stephanie Wynn, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's also a podcaster. Her podcast is called You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. We have her on today because she is the associate producer for a documentary that was just released and that I have watched and it bowled me over. It is called Affirmation Generation. The focus is so-called transgender children. And the documentary looks at this issue and it looks at it by talking to many people who have gone some or part of the way through chemical transition, social transition, um, and surgical transition. And as a reminder, I'm old school, and I take things back to the basics, and I take them back to things that are less euphemistic. What we are talking about is what everyone knew a few years ago as sex changes. And even though that term is not entirely accurate because no one can change sex, I'm going to use that term because you know what it means, and it doesn't candy coat it. Um, I do not talk about gender-affirming care unless I am pointing out that gender-affirming care is actually brutality. Um, Stephanie, I, <laughs> I, you know, I watched, I watched the documentary um, in a couple of different stages, and I, I finished it last night while I was taking, uh, taking notes, getting ready to talk to you today. It, it's incredibly powerful. I know everybody says that about documentaries. I should not speak in cliches so much. Um, but it, it, uh, in my view, it is impossible for a reasonable person to watch this hour and 20 minutes and to listen to the people that you spoke to who shared their entire intimate details from the time before anything had happened to them, before they even socially transitioned, all the way through to those who have enormous regret because they either, you have talked to men who had breast implants put in, who then had them removed. You've talked to women who had their breasts removed entirely. You are, you talk to people who had genital surgery. And some of these people are left severely scarred, sterile, unable to have children. And the detransitioners, that's a term, most of you will probably know that term, but detransitioners means people who did this sex change transition to some degree or another and then pulled back from it and said, no, I'm, I'm not actually a different sex than the one I was born in. And the amount of regret in these people and the knowledge as a viewer that I had watching this, that even though they've come back to sanity and, and happily, happily, many of these people are coming back to a place of better mental equilibrium. They're not, they're not all fine, but they're better It's hard not to cry. Um, I'm going to let you talk because <laughs> I want to cry right now, feeling for these people. How did you get into this? What 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 drove you to do this 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 piece of work? So thank you for that incredible introduction to the film. And you know, as I mentioned when we spoke privately, I don't want to take too much credit. I'm really just a representative of the film, and it's it's an honor to sort of be the public face of this film and be able to discuss these topics. But really, our producers worked so hard behind the scenes, and I can't really speak to their motives, but I can tell you it's genuinely coming from a good place. It's a labor of love. Um, 
And I think everyone who's in this film is in it for those heart-centered reasons. You know, for me personally, um, I was a so-called gender-affirming therapist, and it wasn't working. And I was not helping people that way, the same way I was helping, you know, in other areas of my practice. Uh, because when you practice this so-called gender-affirming model, first of all, it's not a model of psychotherapy. It's, it's, ant it's antithetical to psychotherapy because psychotherapy is about asking questions and getting to the root of things. And affirmation is, is blind and ignorant and just agreeing with everything your client is saying without doing the differential diagnosis, without exploring the underlying issues, right? And I, I found that when I was doing my best to adhere to what was expected of me as a therapist um, in just agreeing with my client's self-diagnosis, I didn't feel like I was truly helping people that way. And I had a lot of questions and it felt like I was constantly ignoring the elephant in the room, which is like, again, antithetical to why I got into therapy. I got into therapy because I grew up with an elephant in the room and I grew up feeling quite frustrated that I couldn't talk about that elephant. And so, you know, talking about the elephant is my job. And, um, so yeah, I came from this uh, model of so-called gender-affirming care that was imposed on an otherwise, I think, healthy approach that I had to counseling, and I saw how it failed people. And uh, so I don't call it gender-affirming care anymore. I call it sex-denying harm, really the opposite in every way. Um, it's Orwellian speak for sex-denying harm. So, um, you know, for me, I think the real turning point was when I learned that detransitioners existed. As soon as I learned uh, that detransitioners existed, I had to know more and I had to understand why they were being silenced. I saw that this was the other side of the story that I wasn't hearing and this was a very likely outcome for the patients that I was um, affirming. And, and, you know, thankfully, I didn't have a role in, in, in pushing anyone toward any kind of medicalization. I didn't sign off on that personally. But the role I did play was bad enough for me personally to need to pause. And as soon as I learned about detransitioners only a few years ago, um, I really kind of dropped everything to learn as much as I could about the issue. And, um, and it's, you know, it was through the process becoming one of those brave therapists putting myself out there saying, hey, we need to talk about this, that the producers found me. And that's how that relationship started. And then I I'm so glad they did find you. Um, and I'm so glad that you had you had a moral core uh, that told you that what was going on was wrong and what you were asked, what you were being asked to do. Not only well, you have a moral core that you knew it was wrong, but you also um you know, as you said, this is not psychotherapy. This, this, it, it, you know, I just want to underline what you said as a professional. Um, I'm not a professional, I'm a layman, but I'm far more conversant with, with psychology and the literature than, than most lay people are. And I'm a long-term therapy patient myself. This, Stephanie is right. Everyone listening, what you have been told is therapy today is not therapy, never was therapy, never will be therapy, and is, as she said, directly diametrically opposed. It's not just a different kind, it is anti-therapy. That is such an important um, uh, point for people to understand. How long have you been a therapist, Stephanie? Oh, well, I graduated in 2013, so 10 years, um, you know, and okay. the, the last year of grad school, I was in a practicum internship, so you could kind of tack that on if you count that. Um, and then, sure. um, so I was a pre-licensed 
MFT intern from 2013 to 2016, and then I've been licensed since 2016, and I've been in pri private practice since 2020. Okay. Did you um, did you um, did you get into this thinking that you were going to <clears throat> either hoping to or that you would attract? a certain kind of client in a certain demographic or a certain kind of client who had a particular cluster of psychological needs? Or did you see yourself as I'm going to be open to all comers in the marriage and family? Did you want to specialize? How was it for I you? I think that's shifted a lot over time. I think my ideas when I got into, I mean, when I started grad school, I was only 25. And, you know, I, I started it going in not knowing much, except that I liked talking to people about their innermost thoughts and feelings. Um, and that, yeah. you know, the counseling profession was a good match for my, my temperament and my nature. Um, you know, I'm, I'm introvert, I'm one-on-one, -on -one, I crave depth and, and connection. And um, I was kind of discovering about myself that, that at that time that mirroring people and getting to know them more deeply was very fulfilling for me. So I really just kind of went into it like that, not knowing what to expect about the counseling okay. field. The grad program I went to was pretty, pretty lofty. Um, you know, we didn't start with the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy. We, we started with um, a more humanistic existential approach, some transpersonal, it was more kind of spiritually oriented, very West Coast liberal progressive program. Um, but that was before the field was totally captured. Um, and so I think I went in imagining, I don't know, I'd be exploring all kinds of issues with mostly adults. I d discovered an interest in couples, which has remained with me to this day. And, um, and I do think I went into counseling expecting that I would do well with adolescent girls, partly because I had such a difficult okay. time myself as an adolescent girl. And that's one reason that it's so tragic for me to not actually be able to work with adolescent girls right now. Um, because with the ideological capture of the field and this complete misnomer uh, of this definition of conversion therapy and the way that it's banned and the way that the, the law complicates um, things for therapists, it just feels too risky to work with adolescent girls, even though I feel like I would be in the best position to help them. Why? Because all the adolescent girls think they're boys. And talk about... And what happens, what happens Stephanie, if you, the therapist for this adolescent girl don't think she's a boy. What happens to so, you? So, you know, earlier we were talking about how the so-called gender-affirming model is really antithetical to therapy. And something that's been on my mind a lot lately is that um, Carl Rogers, um, who's, you know, major influencer of the development of therapy in the 20th century, he said that there are three qualities that are essential to a good therapist. And those are empathy, congruence, and unconditional positive regard. Congruence is sometimes referred to as genuineness, meaning that people aren't stupid, especially if they're going to be bearing their souls to you. They're going to be picking up on, you know, how you're really thinking and feeling toward them. And they're going to be looking for any cracks in the authenticity of the care that you're demonstrating as a therapist. They're going to be looking for how you're judging them. And so if you really want to be an effective therapist, you have to be feeling it truly inside and out that when you're expressing care or curiosity for someone, that that is truly genuine for you, right? That's the congruence piece. Yeah. And um, so something that's been on my mind a lot lately is that when we ask therapists to affirm the so-called gender identity of their patients, we're asking them to violate that core principle of what makes for a good therapist. Because if I see a 15-year-old girl in front of me who is 
classically a 15 year old girl in so many ways with all the angst and all the neuroticism and all the mood swings and all the push pull with her parents and all the self-harm and the way that's manifesting in today's cultural environment is that six months ago she started angrily declaring she's a boy and calling her parents bigots if that's the way that's manifesting but all i see in front of me is just today's version of an angsty teenage girl who's being influenced by her friends and looking for an explanation for her problems and a way to fit in if that's what i see i want to be able to call her by her name i want to be able to call her her i want to be able to address her honestly and and tell her from a place of love and genuine congruence like Carl Rogers said, I want to tell her what I'm seeing. I see that you're really struggling to fit in with your peers and get along with your parents. And I see that right now you're feeling really uncomfortable with your body and even angry about this body that you're in and you want to change this body. I see that you want to be called a boy. That, you know, that presents a conflict for me because I don't see you as a boy. I see you as a girl who's struggling with, you know, in some ways the same things girls have always struggled with. I can't say that to a girl right now because with the way that the so-called conversion therapy laws are worded, it would be very easy for that patient to accuse me of trying to change her gender identity, right? So conversion therapy, which used to mean horrifically abusive practices, has been rewritten to the acronym sexual orientation and gender identity change efforts. They link sexual orientation and gender identity together. Good God. Yes. So if the patient perceives that you are trying to change their gender identity. In other words, that you don't see them as a boy or that you wish to support them becoming comfortable in the body that they have, then you know that's why therapists are just blindly affirming or not working with teens. Right now, I'm not working with teens myself and I'm working to change our legislation here in Oregon. Thankfully, because it, it's a tragedy that somebody like you can't work with teens because I mean, I don't know you, but um, I, have, I have looked at some of the work you've produced. Um, you are certainly the kind of you are the kind of person that had I a an adolescent girl in my life. You are the kind of therapist that I would be seeking for her. Um, uh, we're going to take a break in a minute and come back, but there's one thing I want to touch on about what you said about Carl Rogers and his three principles: unconditional positive regard. Um, I perceive. Tell me if if you know you do or, or you think about it differently. Um, I, I perceive that there is a great deal of misunderstanding, both among professionals and among those in the public who know this term, of what unconditional positive regard actually means. Let me tell you what it means to me, and I may be off here, but you can tell me what it means to you. I believe that people believe that it means, that unconditional positive regard means I will be your yes man or your yes woman. I will say yes to all of your feelings. I will soothe all of your feelings. I will say all of your feelings are appropriate, contextual, and proportionate, um, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see unconditional positive regard that way. I see that if it is a maxim for the therapist to adhere to, I think the maxim is something closer to I, the therapist, am approaching you in open honest, good faith with one goal, and that one goal is to help you become psychologically healthier, and it has nothing to do with what I might personally think about where you live or how you, uh, how you write or this, that, or the other thing. I am here in good faith with you. What do I you think? I think that's very well said, Josh, and 
I think the easiest way for me to talk about this, even if it doesn't resonate with all listeners, depending on their spiritual orientation, is it's about regard for the soul, right? Okay. So, yep. and, and you don't have to have a spiritual language to be a therapist. I wouldn't use this language with all patients. It really depends on their, you know, religious orientation. Sure. But if we see the soul as something deep down and eternal within a person that can get covered or shrouded by ego, I don't have to have unconditional positive regard for the false self that the person has constructed or whatever their current narratives or their bad habits may be. And in fact, to conflate the two, to conflate a person's egoic bad habits and false constructed sense of self, to conflate that with their true self is, I think, a a terrible approach to therapy or or love or or anything because that's not how we help people grow. You know, the way the way you you love someone is to love the soul that is sometimes suffering at the hands of that ego, suffering yes. suffering under that shroud of ignorance and you know, just all, all the conditioning of this world. And so I view it as my job as a therapist to have ultimate regard for people's, um, you know, sovereignty. Absolutely. What they do is, was, is up to them, but it's my job to be a friend of the soul. Right. And if I see that someone is digging themselves deeper and deeper into habits that only create more suffering, I don't have to applaud that. Right. In fact, it's, I believe it's my job to believe in people enough to know that there is a part of them that wants out of that. So you're probably familiar because I know you you uh, study psychology. You pro- you're probably familiar with the concept of ego syntonic and ego dystonic. Yes, yes. Actually, um, this is we're going to pick that up on the other side of the break. This is crucially important, and bless you for saying it. People need to understand what these terms mean. Um, we're going to take a break, folks. Come back and join us on the other side. thank you for your podcast. I discovered your podcast because you were a guest on the show Trigonometry. And hearing your show is kind of like being in a foreign country and you're standing in the middle of a crowded square and you're screaming in English, you're completely lost and nobody understands you. And then all of a sudden um, someone approaches you and addresses you in perfect English. And that's kind of what it was like to hear your show. I'm a marketing consultant uh, for physicians, specifically plastic surgeons, um, and then for psychiatrists. For so long, for the past few years at least, I felt strongly that looking around, it doesn't, doesn't anybody recognize that we're all being <laughs> commandeered by cluster B personalities um, in working with these physicians and these surgeons? I sort of started to specialize in these disorders. So many of the men I work with are narcissistic, but I work with them very successfully because I just have studied and studied and studied it as a ad nauseum, uh, what to say, how to handle it. Um, I stay ahead of the game. And experiencing what we've experienced the past few years has just made me, it has resonated with me so strongly and has is so synonymous and so similar to what I experience with my clients. And I just keep looking around for someone to say it 
and you're the first person I found that has. And so I've just been binge, binging on your um, program and I really appreciate it. I, I want you to continue and I hope you will. And I love your sense of humor too. It's, it's hilarious. So thank you and have a wonderful day. Stephanie, explain in layman's terms, please, egocentonic and ego dystonic. Right. So these are some, you know, sort of fancy psychological terms for describing phenomenon that we're all familiar with, if you really think about it, with regard to how attached is your sense of self to your problems, right? So, um, I remember being taught in grad school in sort of a playful way that the best thing you can hope to be is a normal neurotic, meaning we all <laughs> have some propensity. <laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm a professional neurotic. So we all have some propensity for neurosis, for worry, rumination, depression, anxiety, negative emotion, right? Um, yep. And if you have none then you're either psychotic or sociopathic, right? So so you don't want to be so yep. disconnected from reality or from your capacity for empathy that you don't feel any worry or fear or sadness, right? So, you know, it's yes. better to be a normal neurotic than psychotic or personality disordered. Um, now, part of being a normal neurotic, someone who comes to a therapist saying, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression, is that you're saying, I don't like this about myself. I don't want to feel this way. I'm suffering and I recognize that I'm suffering. And if I can extricate my sense of self from my patterns associated with my suffering, great, help me change. That's what you want in a patient, ideally, as a therapist, because yes. you can work with that, right? But oftentimes it's more complicated than that. So on the opposite end of the spectrum is, uh, so, so we would call that ego dystonic, meaning that my distress is alien or my problems are alien to my sense of self and I want rid of them, right? Yes. And then egocentonic means my ego or sense of self is fused with my symptoms. So the classic example with, of this would be like the grandiose narcissist who says, oh yeah, I know I'm better than everyone. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm the hottest guy in the room. <laughs> what, you got a problem with that? You know, where it's like, okay, your problem is your identity. And, and so you can't, it's very difficult to extricate. And you know this because you specialize as, as a lay person, but you, you have this special knowledge that you developed in personality disorders and in this particular pattern that it is really hard to change uh, patterns of dysfunction in a person's life when they're tied in with their identity and when their whole world is constructed around it. Yeah. When they're, when they're egocentric. Yeah. And that I'm, I'm so glad um, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm not paying you, but I feel like I should be because I'm actually getting validation, um, intellectual validation. Um, the, this is, let, I, I'm going to take a minute here. Um, I, I think this is a good time. I want to disclose to you and to my listeners what my prior assumptions are. 
going into this section of the conversation. I like to do this and I like other people to do it as well because I, I've noticed that a lot of times when we today speak to each other, when we're arguing with each other or when we think we're arguing with each other, we often don't know what we're arguing. We have not defined our terms and we haven't said to our partner, these are the assumptions that I'm carrying in here and I want you to know what they are. Because some of them might be right and some of them might be wrong, but we won't be able to communicate honestly with each other unless we actually understand what the other person is thinking. So here are my priors that I'm bringing in and please, push back in places where you think that I am misguided in these. But here's the position I'm coming from. As you know, I am I focus on cluster B personality disorders and the associated fallout on non-personality disordered people who are in relation with the personality disordered people. So yes, I am talking about the people who are the narcissists, the borderlines, the histrionics, and the psychopaths, but I am not only talking about them, and I am not saying that most of the people I ever talk about are personality disordered. Um, I believe today, and this is why I do the show, that cluster B psychology, narcissism, unstable uh, identity instability, um, mood lability that is common uh, to borderline personality disorder, histrionic behavior, and at the most malignant end, malignant narcissism and psychopathy are occupy a huge psychological place in our entire mainstream culture. The way I say it is what you used to think of as domestic abuse in the home is now structuring your public life. It's structuring your conversations in politics. It's structuring medical treatment. It's structuring what is allowed to be said and, and frankly, what is allowed to be thought. When I watched, when I watched Affirmation Generation, um, I, and I and I and I listen to these people. The detransition is these are these are very courageous people. These are people who have made some of the worst mistakes in the in their own view. I'm not putting words in their mouth. These are people who have made some of the worst mistakes they could have made that have permanent consequences that they can never reverse. Um, and yet, and yet, here they are on the other side, not only saying. This was a terrible mistake, and I have responsibility for it. That's not to say that other people didn't harm them. Other people have harmed them, yes. But they, they understand today that they are the only ones who can, it sounds glib, but rescue themselves, change themselves, reorient themselves to the world in a way that will bring them more psychological stability and contentment. There are not a lot of people out there who are strong enough to do that, especially after the hell that they have been put through in the transgender meat grinder. But I'm looking at these people and here is what, here's what bothers me. One of the things that bothers me a lot about your profession, not you, your profession. Um, I'm looking at people who I am convinced I would have recognized 30 years ago and everyone would have recognized, every therapist except the kooks who were involved with things like the satanic panic, multiple personality disorder bullshit, which in some ways was a precursor of what we're going through right now. Except for those people, 
any competent therapist would have looked at the people in affirmation generation if it were 1990 and they would see a boatload of borderline personality disorder, complicated post-traumatic stress disorder, attachment disorders. Um, these, this cohort, these are the anorexics of my high school in the 1980s. These are the bulimics of my high school in the late 80s and early 90s. They are, they are the girls, the actual living girls in the Salem witch trials in 1692, having hysterical physical and psychological symptoms that they blamed on witches. Um, I'm looking out, and if and I'm going to be reductive here. I don't mean this 100%, but I'm I'm deliberately boiling it down and generalizing. I'm looking at something that looks a lot more like CPTSD and BPD, borderline personality disorder, than I am seeing anything that looks like a genuine. I mean, first of all, I don't believe that. They, you know, it's not that I don't believe it. It's that it is impossible to be born in the wrong body. That that violates the law of non-contradiction. It does not even make sense. You can't communicate that in a sensible way. Why, why, am I looking at an entire profession, whether they are psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed counselors, whatever particular designation state licenses are. Why am I looking at people who can't, and listeners hear the air quotes, who can't see the eating disorder, can't see the self-harm, can't see borderline personality disorder, can't see the sequelae of child abuse? How did this happen, Stephanie? Right. Yeah. I know you can't answer right. the whole thing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it very incisive observations and great questions. You know, I what I can share is my own experience um, because I remember going to the training in so-called gender affirming care around 2017 or so. And actually, um, you know, <laughs> this story has been coming up lately and it's like the the further in retrospect I am from the story, the more shocking it feels and, and the bigger reaction I get from people. But I remember um, in my first job out of grad school, which by the way, going back to your question about who I anticipated working with, there was who I anticipated working with. And then there was the first job I was able to get outside of grand, grad school. And those were very, very different populations. The first job I got out of grad school was in a residential treatment facility for 18 to 24 year olds post-hospitalization with severe mental illness. Most of them had schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. Um, many of them had had prior suicide attempts. This was a very, okay. um, very emotionally dysregulated population. And, you know, many of them came from foster care. They had a lot of complex trauma. They were impoverished and we were very under-resourced. Yeah. Um, and, the first time I encountered any dilemma with regard to how um, what I would now call trans ideology intersects with the needs of other vulnerable people was a time that we were responsible for finding a room for a new um, patient who was um, at the time identifying as trans, but also this was somebody who was actively suffering from delusions and hallucinations. And this person was in the body of a very large, intimidating male. Um, and people shared rooms, and the rooms were divided by sex. And um, 
we were basically forced by the policies to put this large, intimidating male who had very little feminine about him um, in a room with a female because that's how he identified. And the female he was in the room with was a woman with a, an abundance of sexual trauma. And what did she do? She ran away. Yeah. Of course she ran away. I would have run away if I was her too. Of course. Let me let, – let, this is important. Um, this man that you're describing that you remember – uh, who you said was actively delusional and having hallucinations. Assume and pretend a world in which transgender ideology does not exist, okay? What, and, and, and assume, and, and think of it as a hypothetical if you need to, but if you had been that person's treating, if you had been his diagnostician, what would you have diagnosed him with? You know, it's all hypothetical at this point because this was so long ago. It is like, hypothetical. I, I don't remember if it was schizo. It was probably okay. schizoaffective disorder. Something in the schizoaffective, yeah. schizoid, schizophrenic neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. It, it, this is an, you know, it, I'm looking at my notes here about some of the, some of the detransitioner interviews. Um, well, and I actually didn't even finish answering your question. There's just so much. I'm sorry. Well, please, I, I'm please remembering do. your question was what happened to the therapists? Why yes. weren't people seeing what people's real issues were? Right. So I am saying I remember the first time that I was asked to bury my head in the sand about this, you know, and overlook the issue of what could be causing this man to say he's a woman and how does him claiming to be a woman affect actual vulnerable women? Right. And, and whose needs do we need to yes. prioritize here? Um, and is it helping him to affirm his delusion? Right. So um, but, you know, it was 2017 or so that I attended a training that was sort of pushed um, to the group practice I was working at, at the time as like, this is a thing you should definitely attend if you at all can. This is sort of the new model for how to work with gender dysphoria and you should be familiar with it. And I, I, I look back on that training wondering if the the heads of the company that hired the trainer had any idea what they were getting themselves into um, because I can't imagine that they actually felt good about where this was going because that's where we, we were taught the whole ideology about would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? Children need puberty blockers. Children know who they are. Oh All God. of that, right? And I remember the social forces at play that made it uncomfortable to say anything at the time. And and it's like it's it is the story of the emperor's new clothes right because if you think about all those people yes. in the emperor's new clothes they weren't all total dumbasses right these these are ordinary right. people of a range of different intelligence degrees a, a range of life skills um, but it's that social phenomenon of everyone is agreeing that a good person looks at that emperor and sees beautiful clothing. Everyone is agreeing that yes. a good person looks at that girl and sees a boy, right? And if that's what it is yes. to be a good person, a good person is the one who looks at this and sees that, then I don't want to out myself as the, the asshole or the idiot that doesn't see it that way because it means I'm either evil or stupid, right? And I don't want to be either of those. And we all have... And it certainly and it certainly means you'll be professionally ostracized. And it capitalizes on our insecurities. I mean, talk about how the best thing to be is a normal neurotic. Well, a normal neurotic has self doubts. A normal neurotic has emotional anxiety. <laughs> yes. A normal neurotic um, has you know things that they're afraid of being found out about, of ways that they're afraid of being yeah. seen. And so all of those fears and insecurities, whatever they are for a given person, it could be anything. It could be I didn't get my paperwork in on time, right? 
Or it could be, I mm -hmm. missed a client and my colleagues found out that I am just a total flake, you know, or I'm sure. going through a divorce yeah. and I'm ashamed because I'm a couples counselor and I don't want anybody to know that my marriage is in shambles, you know, whatever your, your yes. personal insecurity is, um, you don't want other people to see that. So you keep quiet because you don't want people to think you're evil or stupid. So it's like this progressive training to keep your head in the sand. And it's, that is coexisting with potentially also being a good therapist in other ways. It is massive cognitive dissonance. And that's how it was for me because I was a very effective clinician. When I worked at this company, we had a way of keeping score of people's anxiety and depression symptoms. They actually had to fill out a survey every single time they came. And my scores were off the charts for my patients. Like I had some of the highest scores in the company for how my patients were progressing. Their symptoms were going down, yes. right? And which kind of protected me because I was a little on the edge of the culture of this company. In fact, I was the most progressive leftist clinician there was at the time, right? Okay. But like, yep. it's like there is this cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, I'm helping people and I'm using real tools and I'm having real insights and I'm having real connections with people. And then I'm also providing this so-called gender affirming care that's not getting anybody anywhere. And I'm, I'm pretending that I'm helping people. Like I'm, I'm pretending that I'm treating a man with OCD who just happens to be a trans man rather than that I'm working with a woman with complex trauma who cut off her tits and injected herself with testosterone and is now balding and OCD is just one little manifestation of what's really going yes. on. You know, and, and, um, and this is going to bring this half, uh, this is a two-parter listeners. Um, we're going to, uh, come back to this in the next episode, but I want to, uh, uh, sort of close up with this thought, and and if we want to, we can we can pick this up in the next episode. Another one of my priors here, and I th I, I think it may overlap in some ways with with some of your thoughts. Um, I I don't I see what we call transgender. Okay, we've we've had all sorts of different names. We've had transsexual, we've had transgender, we've had gender identity, we've had gender identity disorder in the diagnostic and statistical manual. We've had gender dysphoria replace gender identity disorder uh, disorder in the DSM. And I I often will make the statement that transgender is not real, and people well what do you mean you don't you you believe that transgender people don't exist no 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 it's not that i know that the people exist it's that the state of being doesn't exist because it doesn't make sense but what that state of being is the way people experience it i formulate transgenderism i see it as a symptomatic expression of underlying already known psychological problems. I don't believe it is standalone. I don't believe that it has any existence of its own that, for example, I do not believe in the, in the possibility of a person, a hypothetical person who is psychologically stable and normal range in every way, except they just happen to be transgender. I don't believe that's real. Uh, and that's controversy uh, that I'll let people think about. And maybe we can pick that up when we start the next episode. Stephanie, thank you for joining me for this. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into it with you in part two. Thanks, Josh. It's been great to be here.
Josh, this is an old Facebook friend of yours, and I just want to congratulate you and thank you for all the work you are doing. You are instrumental in helping me to be my narcissistic mother. That being said, I feel like the pushback you are getting is very interesting because if they, the cluster bees, the psychopathic elite, study us very intently and very closely, they know more about us than we know about ourselves. And so the fact that you are shedding light onto them and how to learn about them and how to operate around them means that you are doing the Lord's work. I am a Christ follower. And for me, that means that it is my job to spread information to help people feel safe and help people live peaceful, healthy lives. So the pushback that I have gotten and that you are getting is completely worth it. So I want to thank you for encouraging people to study maladaption and to study bad behaviors because keeping safe is more important than people's egos and their feelings. So I want to thank you for everything that you are doing. It is important for us to learn about them and study them as much as they learn about and study us. Thank you.